wonder if you've ever known what it is to fall under the spell of Canadian Tire. You see, you walk in with zero intention to buy anything, just for a browse, and then you walk out slightly mesmerized with a drill bit set, or a power tool, or a garage organizer on wheels, or a saucepan set. And the question is, why? Well, the answer is because it was on sale. And sure, it was 80 bucks or 200 bucks or, 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 or whatever it costs, and you weren't planning on spending that at all. But when you consider that it was 200 bucks off the regular price, then you have to buy it. And then months or years later, you find it in the, in the, in the garage, still in its packaging, in the original bag, with the receipt, and you have this vague recollection of maybe... You bought this at some point in the past. Now, for me, it was a Dremel set, which is like a little sandpaper thingy, and I don't know, has a little wire brush on it. And I didn't even know what a Dremel set was. And I'm still not 100% sure what a Dremel set is. I think I'm pronouncing it right. But it was on sale, and I thought that there might come a time when I think, thank God I got that Dremel set. And so I bought it. But the thing is that I never used it, mostly because I didn't know how to use it, and I didn't want to spend time watching YouTube videos on it, so I left it on the shelf untouched and unused. And I think that sometimes revelation for us is a bit like Dan's Dremel set. It's the Dan's Dremel set of the Bible. We're not really sure how to read it. We're not even sure why it's in the Bible. Maybe one day we might need it, but in our day-to-day life, well, it's probably best just to leave it where it is. Now, if this is you, or hands up if you've ever had a thought like that when you think of the book of Revelation, well, good news is that you're not alone. Martin Luther didn't know what to make of the book of Revelation. He once wrote, my spirit cannot accommodate Okay, he was German. Let's do a German accent. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason for the small esteem in which I hold it, that Christ is neither taught or recognized. John Wesley, he was English, so I don't need to put on an accent with there. He had similar thinking. He said, oh, how little do we know of this deep book? At least how little do I know? So both Luther and Wesley either wrote it off or they just kind of left it on the shelf there thinking, uh, I don't even know how to start engaging with it. And like Luther and Wesley, we can leave Revelation on the shelf with its receipt in its bag, untouched, or we can take seriously the promise of blessing in chapter 1, verse 3, for those who read it and those who hear it. So let's take that Dremel off the shelf, as it were. Let's plug it in and let's see what it can do. Now, Revelation is a letter, okay? It's a letter written to seven churches. So it's written to real people in real time. Um, and it was, and, but it's, it's a vision as well, right? And so this vision was given to John, who was most likely the writer of the Gospel of John and the three letters of John, and we just went through 1 John. So it's that John, probably. And, uh, 
As we go through Revelation over the next few weeks, you'll hear more and more about the background and stuff. But for time's sake this morning, I just want to give us a brief overview of chapters 1 through 5, and then I'm going to drill down on a couple of verses in verse 5. Now, I've used a a number of commentaries to help guide me in my study. If you want a list, then please ask me after the service. But even if you never open a commentary, I would encourage you to invest in what's known as a study Bible, like the NIV Zondervan Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible. Both of these are very good, and what they do is that they help you understand a little bit more, sometimes a lot more of what you're reading, so you don't have to go, well, I have no idea. You can now say, well, I have some clue of, of, of what's happening, uh, because there's a lot of You know, you would never go to Japan without a translator, but sometimes we go to the Bible without a translator. It's good sometimes to have a translator with us, and that's what a study Bible's able to do. Okay, so here is this brief overview of chapters 1 through 5. Okay, so chapter 1, John starts off the letter explaining why he's writing the letter, who he's writing it to, and where he's writing it from. And so the why is answered in verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, and, and the why is this? To show God's servants what must soon take place. Now the who in verse 2 is, is that this letter is written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, and now in chapter 2, as we, as we will see, he writes a special section for each church. Uh, so that's the who um, and the why. Now the where is in verse 9 of chapter 1. And John tells us that he's writing this letter from this place called the island of Patmos, which is about 35 kilometers off the coast of southwest uh, uh, Turkey. And it seems that he's been exiled here because of persecution under the Roman emperor. Now, John tells us that Jesus will soon be returning, and John says in chapter 1 that he will be seen by all, including those who killed him. And then John shifts into the first vision in verse 9, and John sees these seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches of, of Asia Minor. And then the Lord appears in the midst of them. He's very scary looking, very bright, very intimidating. Very intimidating, lots of symbolism going on there. And he has this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And what this kind of means is that Jesus is the word, but now these words that he's going to say are going to bring, bring judgment. And then John explains to, uh, Jesus explains to John in verse 19 that the seven stars of the seven golden lampstands are the seven angels of the seven churches. So he's still writing to these seven churches. On to chapter 2. Um, Jesus now gives John a message for each of the seven churches. Now, these would probably be kind of like local house churches. And here's a summary of the message to each church. And these summaries that I have here today uh, come from the Zondervan NIV study Bible. So, for the Ephesus church, Jesus' review is mixed. He says that they have sound doctrine and endurance, but they've lost their first love. Now, for Smyrna Church, Christ's evaluation is a positive one. While the church is afflicted and poor, so that's happening. They're an afflicted and poor church, but they're spiritually rich. Now to the Pergamum Church. Christ's evaluation, once again, is mixed. They've endured persecution, which, which is great. That 
that, that, that they've endured this, but they've also tolerated false teaching, which isn't great. Now onto the Thyatira church. Christ's evaluation, once again, is mixed. He says that he, he, he gives them thumbs up for their deeds and their perseverance, but he also notes that they've tolerated false teaching, similar to the Pergamum church. Now this takes us into chapter 3, where Jesus gives the church at Sardis two thumbs straight down. Not only are their deeds unfinished, he says, but they're spiritually asleep. Now on to the Philadelphia church, um, which is the church of brotherly love. Christ's evaluation is good. Um, Though they are persecuted and weak, even in, in the midst of that, they're still faithful to Christ's name. So Jesus gives them a thumbs up. Lastly, to the church at Laodicea, which is the one which we probably most hear regularly preached on, uh, Jesus accuses them of being lukewarm, spiritually blind, and wretched, so it kind of ends on a bit of a downer there. And then John wraps up each mini letter within the bigger letter of Revelation by saying this, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I wonder, do you have ears to hear? Do I have ears to hear? If so... What is God saying to us? How would he assess us? What review would he give on Yelp for Cornerstone Church? Would his report be a positive report or a mixed report or a negative report? Where would our blind spots be? And would we have ears to listen to what he's saying to us? We then move on to... Chapter 4 on our high-speed train tour, where we're treated to a vision of God surrounded by, or surrounded by his court who were worshipping him. And as one commentator writes, the mood changes uh, from chapter 3, from the stressful situations of the churches and their needs to the dynamic presence of God in chapter 4, who has authority over creation and the Lamb, who by his sacrificial death has triumphed, end quote. So there's a scene change here. And I think that we need this perspective shift more often than we realize, right? This, this is what's happening, but God, remind me of what's really happening up there Now, I say up there, but I'm just about to actually uh, self-correct because because this is the first of six um, throne room scenes in the book of Revelation. Now, this theologian N.T. Wright from the UK, he says this about these about these visions. And I quote, heaven and earth, as I have often said, are not in biblical theology separated by a great gulf, as they are in much popular imagination. Heaven, he puts in air quotes, which is God's sphere of reality, is right here, close beside us, intersecting with our ordinary reality. So it's not so much like a door opening up high in the sky, far away, it's more like a door opening right in front of us, where so, so where before we could see only this room, this field, this street, suddenly there's an opening leading into a different world and an invitation to come up and see what's going on. And then Wright says further, this is not, as, as some people have supposed, anything to do with God's people being snatched away to heaven and avoiding awful events that are about to take place on earth. This is about a prophet being taken into God's throne room so that he can see behind the scenes and understand both what's going to take place and how it all fits together and how it all makes sense. 
end quote. And I find that really helpful because, because we often think of heaven as up there and out there and far away, but N.T. Wright is saying, no, it's right here. It's right in our midst. If only we have the eyes to see. Now, and then in chapter 4, verse 3, we see this emerald rainbow that's wrapping around the throne. And this kind of reminds us of the, of the Genesis rainbow. And then, so that's in a ring around the throne. Then the next ring um, are these 24 elders who represent a combination of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. In, so, in other words, as N.T. Wright says, this is the embodied perfection of the people of, of God. And then in front of, 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 of the throne are these seven um, lamps blazing. Verse 5, looking a bit like a menorah. And this likely represents... God's Holy Spirit. Uh, there are also four living creatures in verse 6 who are neither animals or humans. Now they, and they are covered in eyes, um, which signifies alertness and knowledge. So worship is happening, praise is continuous, and what this scene shows us is that all creation is involved. And so this truth that, that, that these symbols show to us are both encouraging and powerful because it's saying that whatever's happening here on earth, in God's throne room, God is being worshipped as the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He reigns. And then we go into chapter 5, which continues this scene, but now it lifts our eyes up so that we don't see what's happening around the throne, but we see the throne itself, and we see who is on the throne, which is God, and we see what he's holding. He's holding a scroll. Now, this scroll represents the forward march of, of time, okay? And it symbolizes, this scroll symbolizes time and history being drawn to a final conclusion. But like, like we heard in the reading, no one can open it. It's, it's like the, you know, the sword in the stone, Excalibur, right? Someone comes up and they try it and they try it and try it. No one's able to do it until the uh, once and future king comes. And so it's the same here. No one's able to do it, but then John hears with a sigh of relief, someone say this, that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He can open it. Now, there's this great uh, resource on YouTube. It's known as the, as the Bible Project. If you ever want to get great overviews of books of the Bible, watch those. They're absolutely amazing, amazingly done. They're all free. And, uh, and what the Bible Project does is that they paint a picture here of this shocking turn of events that happens because what's happened is that John has heard that this line of Judah can open the scroll. He then turns around waiting to see this line of Judah and instead he sees a lamb with its throat slit, which is a wonderful picture of Jesus winning this victory through sacrifice. You see, the, the uh, Jews were looking for this mighty warrior Messiah, but then Jesus comes kind of under the radar as a sacrifice. The way up is down, he's saying, that the way to victory is through sacrifice. Now, this lamb with its throat slit has seven horns representing power and authority and seven eyes, which verse 6 tells us represents 
God's Holy Spirit. So if we were to kind of de-symbolize this scene, we might say something like this, that God is on the throne and Jesus, who won the victory through sacrifice, is the only one who can guide history through to its completion. And he does this through virtue of his power and through the Holy Spirit. And and then the news that Jesus is the only one who can open the seals of the scroll is met with noise and worship and applause. And that's kind of like a summary of Revelations chapter 1 through Revelations chapter 5. Now, in a few minutes, I will be uh, focusing in on one or or two verses. But but just just as I lead into that, um, I want to... um, I want to give you a couple of tips. Is this still? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, here's, here's a couple of tips for us to remember when we're reading Revelation. Okay, so number one is read it. Because chapter 1 verse 2 clearly tells us that we're blessed if we read Revelation and we're blessed if we hear it and we take it to heart. So if we don't read it and don't hear it and don't take it to heart, then we're missing out on blessing. And uh, I actually learned that from John at our grow group on Monday, which was awesome. So Revelation is supposed to be read. Secondly, understand that Revelation is supposed to be read on three levels. Here's, Here's what John Stanley writes, and I quote. He says this, I assume that Revelation has a contemporary and future message as well as a first century meaning. So there's then, there's now, and there's the future. These are the inescapable time frames for readers of Revelation. So to understand its message, he says, we, we must start by trying to state what John meant when he originally wrote. But the Bible's message should not be locked into its first century setting. The themes of Revelation continue to have an abiding value. Moreover, the book continually speaks of the future coming of Jesus Christ. That second coming of Christ cannot be ignored. The text points us towards the future, end quote. So uh, what does that mean? Well, I'd like you to think of it like a pool. Okay, you're staring at the surface of the pool. So if you can imagine back to the summer when there wasn't ice on that pool and you're staring at the surface of the pool and on the surface is a leaf floating. And then your eyes kind of do this refocusing and you look through the surface of the water to a pool toy that's lying on the bottom of the pool. And then your eyes kind of go a little bit unfocused and suddenly you can see the sky reflected on the surface of the pool, right? It's one scene, but there's three layers of you interacting with it. First century understanding what it means to us now and future meaning, past, present and future. Okay, so having said all that, uh, whistle-stop tour. Let's move now from the macro to the micro, from the telescope to the microscope. So please open your Bibles, if you don't already, to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and we'll look at this using the SOAP method, Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. First, the Scripture. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That, that's S, scripture. Now observation O. What can we observe in this passage? First of all, they sing a new song. It's a song that's never been heard before. 
And this, and this whole passage is a song. In fact, we, we just heard Andrew Peterson's interpretation of this Revelation song, Is He Worthy? But who, who's singing it? Who's in the choir? Now, as we look back a couple of verses, we find out that it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Now, we've already mentioned that, that, these, that these 24 elders are the people of God in the presence of God, right? The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12, and the 12 apostles. But what about these weird-looking animal, human creature things? Now, According to Warren Wearsby, these creatures both remind us of the cherubim of Ezekiel 1, 1 through 14. So here's a tip. Almost every, or in fact every, symbolic thing that's mentioned in the book of Revelation has its unlocking key in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so you need to look back and see what it meant there in order to understand what it means in the book of Revelation. And so... so you know, these weird kind of animal, human, uh, these, these, these beasts or these, um, these living creatures, as they're called, remind us of the cherubim of Ezekiel 1, 1 to 14, and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. That's what Warren Wisby says. He then suggests that these animals represent all of God's creation. So you've got man, and you have one with the face of a man. You have one with the face of a cattle, which represents beasts of burden. You also have one with the face of a lion that represents wild beasts. And then you have one with the face of an eagle that represents all of the birds. And then, um, so in what this means, if we're going to desymbolize it, is that this hymn of praise is being sung by God's creation and by God's redeemed family, by God's people. In other words, those who are serving Jesus as king. And they declare in verse 9 that Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Like I said, he's the only one who's worthy to take this world to the finish line and to wrap it up. But why is Jesus worthy? What, what, what are the qualifications that Jesus has to guide history through to its conclusion, through to judgment? Well, his one qualification that's mentioned in this passage is that he was slain. Okay? He was sacrificed. So Jesus earned his worthiness to judge through sacrifice. Because he was sacrificed. And this, this, and, this, and this passage tells us that Jesus purchased for God a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what this tells us is that God's offer of salvation is open to everyone on this earth. And that God's people is not made up of a single people group. Uh, but it's made up of everyone. And it's not just modern countries with our political boundaries, but thinking for, for, for every tribe, every nation, every language group will be represented there. So God's redemption through Christ is wide-reaching and is open to everyone. And what this means, and why I find this really exciting, having travelled to 50 countries and seen what the church international looks like, what I know is that the church of Revelation is not going to sound or look like you and me. Not at all. Not by a long shot. And next thing you know, as we observe, is that we must not forget that, that this purchase power that Jesus got, right? So he gained this purchase power, and the way that he gained it cost him everything. So, so the price of your perfect standing with God was the blood of Jesus, this lamb who was slain. 
We weren't on a buy one, get one free sale. You know, Jesus didn't get a deal. He paid full price for your soul. And as verse 9 tells us, with, with your blood, you purchased for God a people. Now, verse 5 of chapter 1 makes this truth really personal in a beautiful way. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so the price for your salvation, for your, for your redemption, was incredibly steep. But Jesus was happy to pay it. And then verse 9 tells us that Jesus, that, that God takes this ragtag group of kind of international misfits and he makes them into a kingdom and priests. Now, a kingdom, of course, is where a king reigns and priests are those that make worship happen. So as we look at ourselves here today, if you were in Christ, we are looking at an imperfect but a glorious picture of the kingdom of God, where God reigns, and the priesthood of God, where worship happens. Which is amazing, right? Okay, so that's S, that's O. Now let's move on to A for, for application in our soap word. How do we apply this truth to our lives? Well, first of all, it should thrill us that part of the glory of the throne room of heaven will be recognizing the love that God has for us, that he paid full market price for, for, for your soul and for your freedom. Secondly, I think that this verse helps us to answer some of the reservations that we might have about this idea that one day God's going to judge us. Because this idea that God's going to judge us isn't a popular thought nowadays, right? And, uh, and we will find out between chapters uh, 4 and 8, I think it is, or perhaps even further, that these seals on the scroll represent uh, various judgments. And, and, this, and this kind of chafes in our modern day society because we want to think at least that we live in a world where we're free to do whatever we want and that we won't have to one day um, have to pay for our actions or pay for our crimes. And anyway, who does God think he is that, that he wants to judge us? What gives God the right to judge me or you? And anyway, even if God is going to judge us, how do we know that, that his character is good? How do we know that he will be fair? How do we know that God has our best interests at heart? So it's very important as we read on that we understand this. Who is this person that opens these seals of this scroll? And so and, and verse 9 of chapter 5 of Revelation tells us exactly what kind of God will, will be judging us. And it's the kind of a God who dies for the entirety of mankind, not leaving even the most insignificant people group out. It's the kind of God that represents himself as a lamb with his throat slit. He's the kind of God that looked at you, that estimated your price, and then decided to purchase your salvation with his own life. He's the kind of God who transforms dropouts and failures into a kingdom where he rules and into a priesthood who now have direct access to him. And so when we get into the judgment passages next week, we need to remember that this God, that this Jesus, that this God-man has this character resume uh, and he's the one that will be undoing each clasp on the scroll of judgment. He alone is worthy, he alone is just, and he alone is love. Now, this is not to say that Jesus will be soft on sin, not at all, but it does say that he crazy, crazy loves us. 
Now, there's one more thing that we have to consider when we're talking about judgment. Now, remember when I said that, that this book can be viewed on three levels like a pool, right? You have the surface level with the leaf, and then you look through to the pool toy, and then it reflects, and, and, you, know, and, and you see the trees or the sky. Well, one of the levels, and the first level, actually, that we have to interpret Revelation is not by looking ahead and seeing end-time stuff, but the first level that we have to interpret a Revelation is what was going on in the time when it was written. Now, this book was likely written around the year AD 95. Now, this would have been after the reign of Nero and during the reign of Emperor Domitian. That's D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N. And in that time, life was hard for, for Christians. Um, suffering was really intense. There was this pressure to bow and worship the emperor, much as there's, a, there's pressure nowadays, you know, to do what's societally uh, acceptable. Well, that pressure was much harder then. And, uh, and this emperor styled himself as our Lord and our God. And so it would have been hard to resist this. And we also know it was a hard time because John was in exile and he was the last of the, uh, of, of, the, of the disciples alive. All of the rest had been executed in one way or other. And so it's small, so it's, so it's not a big wonder uh, in chapter in, in chapter 5, verse 4, when no one is found to open the scroll, that John weeps and weeps. Because why John wept was that if there's no one who can bring this world to a close, if there's no one who can hold the unjust to account, if there's no one who can establish righteousness and fairness, then all that we're left with is is this world in which we live where the wicked thrive and the righteous suffer, and it goes on and on and on ad nauseum. And that is a hopeless picture. That's why John cried and wept. And so John has to know, he needs to know in his soul as he's on, in exile on this island that one day God will show up and will draw things to a close, that he will one day call to account those who have done evil and those who have promoted injustice. That's why when the lamb shows up to open the seals and unroll the scroll, that it's a relief. This is why it's worthy of this hymn of worship being sung by this redeemed church and all, all that God's made. So, you know, we like to sit in our seats and say, you know, how can you believe in a God of justice? I mean, who is he? But let me tell you something, that you just have to ask anyone who's, who's suffered injustice, anyone who's suffered for, for their beliefs, anyone who's been assaulted or injured, and no one's ever been called to account for it, who has, anyone who's been at the mercy of corrupt systems, who has been enslaved, whose entire existence on this earth has been misery after misery, just ask one of them if they're grateful to believe in a God of justice, and they will tell you yes. And so, so, so my one thought is this, that Jesus' role as saviour uniquely qualifies him as judge. Now, next week, we're going to look at Revelation 6 through 10, but that's the thought which I want to leave us with, that Jesus the saviour is uniquely qualified to be our judge. Now, that's S-O-N-A, scripture, observation, application. Now all that's left is prayer. So I'll ask the worship team to return as I pray, as I pray this scripture back to God. Jesus, you are the saviour and the judge. Only one person can answer this job ad. It's you. Only one person can take the scroll of judgment and open its seals and it's you. 
because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God me, us. And one day you will make everything right. But until that time, help us to worship you as saviour and judge, knowing that the judge of the earth will do right. I thank you that in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that we are told that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, which is like those words that we just read in verse 10, that we're God's special, that, that you own us, that we are yours. And the reason is so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. It says, once we were not a people, but now we, we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for, for these wonderful scriptures and for the hope and the confidence which it brings into our lives, regardless of what's happening. You are on the throne. Help us to open that door and see what's happening even now. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>